Hey everybody, welcome back to the Optometry Money Podcast, where we're helping ODs all over the country make better and better decisions around their money, their careers, and their practices. I am your host, Yvonne Mindrin, certified financial planner, professional, and owner of Optometry Wealth Advisors, an independent financial planning firm just for optometrists nationwide. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate your time and attention in on today's episode. I'm going to continue that investing theme. And today's episode is going to be all about should you invest in stocks globally? Uh, in our last episode, we talked about different factors to consider to figure out how much or what percentage of your investment should be in stock type investments versus bonds. Uh, we talked a lot about the trade offs of risks and reward. Uh, we talked about the importance of time horizon. And now that you hopefully have an idea of what percentage of your investments should be in stocks, I want to talk about how to fill in that stock bucket, right? What what to actually put in there. And a common question that comes up is, well, should you just invest in the US, in the United States? Should you invest internationally? What should you do? And it's been observed that investors tend to have a home country bias, meaning that they invest in more of their own country's stocks relative to their country's stocks weight in the global stock market, right? So for example, in the US, uh, since we're, we're talking about US investors here, the US stock market actually makes up a pretty good chunk of the global stock market. It's just over 50%, I believe. Um, and there are many voices, particularly in optometry groups, that talk about being passive investors using index funds and only investing in the S&P 500, which is an index fund that tracks the largest 500 companies in the U.S. Is that a rational approach? Is that the right way to approach divvying up your investments? Today's episode, we're going to talk about the reasons why you should invest in stocks globally and not just the United States. And First, let's talk about the benefits of diversification, because that's really what we're talking about, diversifying all over the globe. Diversification is one of the most fundamental and important tenets of modern finance, and it's all about risk management, spreading out your risks across many different investments, and it's supported by uh, financial theory and just common sense, as well as historical data. And the idea behind diversification is that you want to own not just one company, so that all of your wealth is tied to the fortune of the rise and fall of one particular company. So where if that company has struggles, then all of your wealth is, is feeling the struggles of that company. If one company goes out of business, which we've definitely seen, all of your wealth is not impacted by that one company going out of business. And so you want to own not just one company, well, the stock of one company, but many companies. Uh, so that the difficult times or the entire fall of one company can be offset by the better times of other companies. And you want to own many companies, not just in one industry, but in all the other industries, so that the rise and fall of one particular industry can be offset by the rise and fall of the other particular industries. And not just the largest companies, but in all companies. And you're currently able to pretty easily and pretty inexpensively diversify your portfolio really well. You can own just about all publicly traded companies pretty easily and pretty inexpensively in a way that you would never have been able to in the past. 
And out of the academic work that's came out over the last 50 years came something called modern portfolio theory, which describes that you should look at the risk of your investments, not just as the risk of each individual investment, each individual company, each individual asset class, category of investments, but as the risk of your entire bucket of investments as a whole. And you can see the benefits of diversification historically through data and that owning the collection of different assets together, different investments together, means you won't see the volatility of the highest risk assets, but without giving up substantial return over the long term. And this is why diversification is often called the only free lunch in investing, because generally speaking, in order to increase the expected return potential of your investments, you should also expect to increase the risk of that investment. You know, anytime someone pitches you, you can get lower or you can get higher returns than something else. You should expect that it's going to also come with higher risk than whatever is being compared to. Anytime someone is saying the opposite, the risk is in some way being being hidden or miscalculated. I mean, that's that's sort of the reality of it. It's always going to come with higher returns in some way, shape, or form, or and or higher costs. So generally speaking, if you're going to want to increase the potential returns that you can expect from your investments, you should expect to also increase the risk that you're taking on. So diversification is likely the only way that you can lower the risk of your investments as a whole by diversifying away from the risks of each individual company without materially impacting the long-term returns. And, and we talk about risk. Usually in these situations, we're talking about either volatility, like the bounciness of your portfolio, or, or the risk of a big decline, or the I should say the severity of a big decline. However, diversification also means that you're going to be unhappy all the time with some particular part of your investments. Because you own all of the biggest winners and also the biggest losers. You're, you're never going to get the highest return of the highest returner, but you're also not going to see the, the highest amount of risk with the most risky assets. So there's always going to be some part of your portfolio you wish were different, you wish were improved, or that's not performing as well as the others. You know, a common saying with financial advisors is that being diversified means you're always going to have to say you're sorry because there's always some part of the portfolio a client or an investor is going to wish that was doing better. So the question is then, going back to that initial question, for the portion of your investments that are in stocks, should you invest in stocks globally or should you invest in just stocks in the United States? And you know, when looking at the recent performance, well, the U.S. stock market has actually outperformed international stocks for at least the last 30 years. And from some data I've seen, it actually goes back. That outperformance actually goes back over the last 100 years or so. And even knowing that, I believe, yes, you should be investing globally. And let's talk about why. I'm going to summarize three to four pieces of research on this and then include a whole bunch more resources in the show notes so that you should be fully equipped with data on why this is important if you'd like to learn more. Uh, because if diversification is important for risk management, if we believe that that's true, you want to position your wealth in a way that's most robust to all the ways that the future world can unfold, uh, both from the standpoint of managing risks and being open to the opportunity of companies all over the world. 
you want to diversify against different political and government changes and long-term economic performance from each individual company. Uh, We simply do not know the future. And while there are strong opinions about not betting against the U.S., or um, the how much better the United States is versus other countries. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons to be pretty happy with the United States. I mean, we live in a, a country that has historically had a strong, innovative entrepreneurial spirit. There's rules of law. There's laws that benefit entrepreneurship and business ownership. And we've seen, uh, as we've seen, we've seen the United States historically move from an emerging market into one of the most uh, powerful global economies in the world, but we don't know how future governments will change. We don't know how the future will unfold. We don't know how wars will unfold. We don't know which countries will do better than other countries over any periods of time, especially over really long periods of time. And something I've just been interested to pick up from other from other research around really long-term performance of, of other countries is that we don't really realize, we sort of underestimate how much of a part luck plays in just the long-term growth and benefit of the United States. In that, when we think about the fact that the the U.S. has been sort of isolated from the impact of severe major wars. Like we, we've not seen two world wars devastate our own cities like we've seen across overseas in Europe or, or in other parts of the world. And we can easily see, for obvious reasons, losing world wars is is really bad for stock markets. Uh, We've not seen, outside of the Civil War, we've not seen revolutions in the United States where where governments have nationalized or taken over property rights or removed property rights from from its citizens. We've benefited from luck in a major way here in the United States, and we simply don't know how the future will unfold in any particular country. And historically speaking, we definitely see research that shows investors benefit from global diversification. So let's let's talk about some of that research. In a 2011 uh, financial analyst journal paper by Clefasnis and other articles titled International Diversification Works Eventually, uh, the authors look through different data from about 1950 through 2008, and they look at portfolios made up of only local stocks from 22 different countries and global stock portfolios from the perspective of each of those countries. And they wanted to see from what extent global diversification helped protect you from your own country's worst local stock crashes, Uh, from the worst short-term periods, like one-month local declines, and then over longer periods of time. And a big pushback against the need to be globally diversified is that global stock markets actually tend to be highly correlated during market crashes. And, and this is true, meaning they they tend to move together much more during big market crashes. And, and in fact, we've seen correlations get closer and closer together, closer and closer to one over recent decades. And, and that's true. In the very worst months, uh, while global markets, global diversification may have helped a bit, all markets were definitely higher correlated. If things crashed, you felt it no matter how you were allocated. Uh, But this actually misses the point because if you are a long-term investor, you shouldn't be overly concerned or only concerned about short-term crashes. In fact, your your main concern as a long-term investor should be long-term growth and wealth preservation over your entire investment timeline, Uh, especially above and beyond inflation. As we talked about in our last episode, your time horizon really matters. So 
In the shortest term, being globally diversified doesn't actually save you from the pain. If if the US market crashes, it's likely the global stock market crashes pretty relatively closely along with it. Um, That's actually where bonds and even cash come into play depending on your need for them. However, the long-term time horizon actually told a different story. Uh, The authors saw that as your time horizon increased, the benefit from global diversification increased as well. As more and more of the return is driven by the long-term economic performance of each specific country. So over the short term, markets tend to crash together. Um, That's unfortunately just a part of investing in stocks. But over the long term, markets don't tend to crash in these long extended bear markets at the same time. And being globally diversified protects you from long, drawn-out, poor performance in any one particular country. So we can see this over time. I mean, the U.S. has outperformed international stocks over that entire time period, but there's plenty of periods where it didn't perform the best and international stocks held their own, even over long-term periods like 10-year periods of time, especially after adjusting for inflation in each country. Uh, The lost decade, the so-called lost decade is a great example of this. The media talks about this 10-year period between 2000 and 2010 as this lost decade. That's where uh, it would include both the tech market crash in the early 2000s and the great financial crisis. Uh, And in this period, the, the media talks about it where you didn't actually earn a return for investing in stocks. But that's not actually the whole story. Large U.S. stocks were the ones that had slightly negative returns during that period uh, before adjusting for inflation. After inflation, it's, it's a little bit worse. However, small U.S. stocks had positive returns. Uh, small U.S. value stocks had quite positive returns. And importantly, international stocks, both large and small, had positive returns. So you would have benefited from that time period, even though it's called the lost decade, from being internationally diversified. Another recent paper, a second one, by one of those same authors um, is titled International Diversification, Still Not Crazy After All These Years. And uh, this one drives home five important points about the benefits of investing internationally. Uh, The first two points are actually sort of repeat from the last paper. Basic financial theory and common sense say you should diversify globally, and it doesn't help in the short term during market crashes, but it does a pretty good job of protecting investors over the really long term. Uh, The next two points that it mentions are about differences in valuations between countries, and the authors write that at a really high level, there's two ways that a country's stock market can beat the competition. You can outgrow on the fundamentals, meaning a country um, or Companies can improve profits or economic performance, or it can just become more expensive for the same amount of earnings and economic performance, meaning valuations can just get higher. And while the U.S. has outperformed over the last 30 years or so, much of that's due to door number two. So just becoming more expensive for the same economic performance. Investors have been willing to pay more for U.S. stocks for roughly the same amount of earnings growth, probably for a variety of reasons, at least partially due to uh, the U.S. looking as a more stable environment, perhaps U.S. stocks carrying less risk overall. Investors are weighing the risk and return potential for all of these different companies and all of these different countries. Uh, But as the writers say, it's not likely this is repeatable. 
It's even potentially irrational to expect that U.S. performance will continue at the same pace into the future as we've seen from the past. Because in general, higher valuations means that you should actually expect a lower return in the future. Uh, This isn't a law. This isn't a law like gravity, but this is a pretty good relationship between higher valuations and lower returns you should expect and lower valuations, lower prices and higher returns that you should expect. Um, You know, think about like buying a private practice. If you're going to buy a much more established, uh, mature practice, you're going to pay a higher price for it. It's going to have a higher valuation, but it's going to come with much more stable revenues and earnings. It's going to carry less risk, but you should also expect a lower wealth building opportunity, a lower return over time than you would with a cold starter, maybe something that's a a fixer-upper that carries a lower price, but a much higher risk profile. So higher valuations in the United States means that you may not want to expect that that same outperformance will continue as it has in the past. Um, And then one last point in that paper is that if you're using different factors in your investments, like um, the academic, academic factors of value or profitability, those factors actually have lower correlations from country to country. So you're getting an added benefit of diversification. They, they show up in your returns at different time periods uh, from country to country. So that's five points driven home in that paper. Uh, there's another couple pieces all included in the show notes by Vanguard, which are reiterating similar positions that global diversification is important and can lower the average bounciness, the average volatility of your investment mix over time. Uh, It even suggests a range of optimal amounts of international stocks to have in your portfolio. And then that valuation differences between the U.S. and everywhere else might indicate that it's not likely to expect the same U.S. outperformance from the past into the next decade. Is it possible? Sure. Is it likely? Not likely. Um, lastly, there's there's more resources I'm going to include in the show notes so that to uh, to fully overwhelm you with the information you need to invest globally or just to win a debate with one of your peers. Um, one of the other common arguments against the need for international investing is that a larger multinational companies get a large portion of their revenues, or I should say, a large enough portion of their revenues from other countries. You know, you're going to see this in the U.S. really from larger companies. They're going to have a larger amount of their revenues from overseas, while smaller companies rely more on U.S. customers. Uh, but this doesn't actually hold up empirically, as these these large multinational companies' stocks actually move really closely with their home country index. So you don't really get a big diversification benefit from that. Uh, there's other tax issues too, as well. International diversification um, in the U.S. you get a you get a foreign tax credit to sort of offset that if you're owning these stocks in a taxable investment account. Uh, But overall, I I think the data is clear uh, and just the common sense logic behind diversification is clear that you should invest globally. You you should not limit your, the risk that you're exposing yourself to one company. And you should also not limit your opportunity set to just these stocks within the United States. I, I don't see a reason why you would want to limit your opportunity Uh, and not invest in the great companies all over the world. And many of which you are probably familiar with and you probably use products and services from them on a regular basis. So what should you do? 
Like where, where should you start? How much of the U.S. should you own versus everything else? Like going back to the opinions I mentioned earlier, um, there are many even in popular social media groups for optometrists advising to simply hold the S&P 500 and call it a day. Like, is that appropriate? Well, I would argue no for, for many reasons. There's, I mean, there's talk of being passive investors using index funds. And I, I don't quite, when they say that, I don't quite think they they understand what passive investing means um, because this is taking a passive investment vehicle, an index fund, and making a very active investment decision. You are only investing in only in just the largest companies in just the United States and excluding the thousands of other companies in the United States as well as all over the world. So if you're going to make a, a very active decision like that, well, is that backed by anything? Is there any data or research supporting that other than opinion or that it's done better recently? And there's no research that I'm aware of. In fact, uh, other than anecdotes about how how great the United States is and not to, again, not to take away from this great country we're, we're fortunate to live in, but there's no actual research, data-driven research that I'm aware of that supports this as the right approach. Uh, in fact, the fact that the U.S. has outperformed in recent history is not a reason to expect that that's going to continue indefinitely. We have to be really careful about taking what's done lately, what's done best lately, and extrapolating that out into the future. Data does not support that. It's a recency bias we have to avoid, which is odd to say because, you know, 30 years is actually many, <laughs> is actually much of our lifetimes, you know, or, or much of your investment experience has been 30 years. It might be odd to say that that's not a long enough time horizon to rely on and extrapolate into the future. But and when we look at the academic research around this, it would suggest the, the actually the opposite. If you're going to tilt, meaning if you're going to hold more of something than the broad market indicates that you should own, it should actually be towards, most likely towards smaller value, more profitable type companies than the larger growthier type company. So if we're thinking about where you should start, uh, if we believe that investing globally is important and diversification is important, um, I believe global diversification matters. So you should invest not just in the US, but in overseas as well. So how much should you invest in the US versus other countries? Um, you know, it's important for me to say that this is not investment advice, right? I don't know you or anything about your finances. You shouldn't take advice from someone on a podcast and immediately apply it to your life. But consider this as a starting point for your own due diligence or your own conversations with your own advisor. Uh, so my suggestions for the starting point of your own due diligence should be the global stock, the global stock market as a whole for the stock part of your portfolio. And you can find index funds that invest in the whole global stock market. And you can take a look and see how those, those index funds divvy up the stocks between US and all the other countries. You know, the, the market, all of the collective market, all the collective investors have set prices in a way taking into account the perceived risk and reward profile of all of these different companies in all of these different countries. So that is, in my opinion, the best starting point for, for your own research, your own due diligence is to start with the global stock market and see how that's divvied up, how that's allocated. 
among all of the different countries in the world. And as you research, as you find reasons to deviate or adjust away from that, then you can start to move away from that. Uh, For example, if you are a purely passive investor, by definition, and I mean, you're not wanting to make any any decisions or allocation decisions on your own, but you simply want to accept the pricing of the markets as they are and the and enjoy the growth of the global uh, global economies, you may not want to make any adjustments. You may just want to stay with that as it is. But a- another example for my firm, we we start with the global stock market and then tilt away from that a little bit, owning more smaller value and profitable type companies, which means we we own a little bit more of those companies with those characteristics or those factors that academic research would suggest adds higher potential expected returns over long periods and as well as additional sources of risk. Um, so we start with the global stock market and I just tilt a little bit. I just I just own a little bit more of other uh, of those characteristics. But you can use the global stock market as your starting point and adjust away from that as your research shows you that you should. And hopefully this is helpful. Uh, there's a ton of resources and, and charts and pictures in the show notes. So go ahead and dig through that. Uh, you can find that at the education hub on my website, www.optometrywealth.com. So take a look through there as well as all the other episodes and articles and resources we put together. And while you're there, feel free to schedule a no commitment introductory call. And we we can talk about whatever's on your mind financially. And we can talk about how I help optometrists all over the country navigate decisions like this and proactive tax planning and really everything in between. And if you have any questions on this or ideas for future episode topics, things you'd like to learn more about, um, you can send an email over to Yvonne, E-V-O-N, at optometrywealth.com. And again, hopefully this has been helpful. Really appreciate your time. If you've enjoyed the content, uh, please share this with your peers and leave a review. I mean, that, that feedback is super helpful for me and helps to get this podcast and this educational content in front of more and more of your peers. So again, appreciate your time and your listening. Uh, We will catch you on the next episode. In the meantime, take care. Want more resources to help master your money? Check out the Education Hub on Yvonne's website at optometrywealth.com. Yvonne Mindrin is a certified financial planner and owner of Optometry Wealth Advisors, a California-registered investment advisor. All opinions of Yvonne and his guests are their own. This show is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for specific investment, legal, tax, or other decisions. Clients of OWA may own securities mentioned on this show. 